Sandy Carielli from Forrester Research. Uh, thank you very much for taking the time to chat with me. I've, I've missed our conversations about your dominance in the trivia space, as well as uh, you know uh, the things we talk about as far as I, I make barbecue, you make cakes. So we figure out a way to trade that back and forth. How are things going at Forrester? Things are good, and I miss our trivia discussions too. I still want to find a way to team up with you and just really smash it because I think the two of us would totally dominate a trivia night. Yeah, I think I think we could do some damage there. Uh, it's uh, yeah, one of these days we'll have to figure out a, a, a bar that does those trivia nights and go off and make some money. <laughs> I think it'd be fun. And you've seen some of the results of my baking recently, but I will talk later about some of my favorites these days because I've been. You know, I need something to occupy myself when I'm not, you know, doing researching and doing all those cool things. Well, you're working on a wave right now, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'm looking at the software composition analysis market, which is a timely wave to be doing right now because SCA is about finding issues in primarily open source, but also commercial components around vulnerabilities and licensing and just general sort of code quality issues. And so with all the issues around supply chain right now, SCA is a very relevant part of that conversation. So that's a really good starting point, because I was reading this paper um, that was published. Uh, gosh, when was it published here? It was published like three or four days ago. Um, and actually, I want to make sure that I find the link to it. That is. Uh, so let's see. Dynatrace Research published it. 71% um, of CISOs aren't fully confident that code isn't free of vulnerabilities before going live into production. And there was a follow-on to that that said, most mobile applications from Fortune 500 organizations have been found that they could be compromised in under 15 minutes. Does that, does that scare you? I mean, how do you, like, what's the, what's the fix there? So in terms of being free of vulnerabilities, I absolutely believe that most applications are not. You know, there's always that risk calculation. And the question is what vulnerabilities are in the applications when they're out there? Are they critical vulnerabilities? Are they particularly exploitable? What, what, are, the, what are the issues in that? Um, does it scare me? Well, at this point, it almost feels as though we've been, it's been beaten into uh, submission a little bit because it happens so much. You just see so many different application issues. So it's something that I think we need to make better. Um, and it's certainly something that still presents a tremendous amount of risk to organizations. Um, hard to say it scares me unless I sort of live in a permanent state of fear. Yeah, no one must be afraid all the time, right? We've been living that way for too long now, I think. I mean, I've been doing dealing with AppSec, you know, since the early 2000s. And there have always been vulnerabilities in applications. And really the thing that's changed is the way in which we introduce the vulnerabilities into applications. Yay. So when you say that, you know. what's the change that's happened? So there are some things that have stayed the same. I mean, if you look at the OWASP top 10, it changes a little bit every few years, but it's fairly consistent in terms of the types of vulnerabilities. But the way we build applications is different. There are fewer monolithic applications. APIs are much more common as a way of building applications, gives you new ways to engage with you know, your partners, with your customers, with external entities that can leverage it in different ways. And so as you're building out applications this way, you still need to account for security. But the 
the types of damage that you can do by not securing your APIs are both similar and different to what you can do by not securing you know, traditional monolithic applications. As we build applications differently, we need to protect the new ways we're building. And that's APIs, but it's also containers, it's also low code, it's all of the different building blocks. Yeah, so that, that this report, because I thought this one was great and I'll, I'll share it in the comments section, but I just, there was a, a point in here make sure that I find the correct statistic here. Um, Peter Klimek, Director of Technology in Perva, which we're familiar with, pointed out that 85 to 90% of enterprise code bases on GitHub come from open source libraries and can, contain on average 203 dependencies. Now, that's that's kind of mind boggling when you think about it, right? I mean, is that is that is that accurate, do you think? Or do you think it's way off? It Honestly, it sounds right to me. When I uh, published my report on state of application security earlier this year, um, I found some research trends from Synopsys that has looked at the state of open source security over the last few years. And in 2015, their analysis said that something like 36% of the of the code bases they scanned were comprised of open source. And by this most recent year, it was at 72%. So yeah, it's pervasive and oh. open source builds upon itself, right? So you're going to have all of these transitive dependencies within the libraries that just keep building and building and building and building. So yeah, I can absolutely believe that there are that many libraries. So then for for folks that might not understand, like what's, what's the risk of that? And I, I think it's worth caveating yeah. too, like... I'm a terrible developer. Like I have people that think that, that tell me that, oh, cyber, you got to know how to write code. I write absolute crap code, but it's not pretty. But using open source, like the stuff that I've been doing with deep fakes, I never wrote a line of code. I might've used a couple little things that I Googled to find whatever, but like you can build applications and never have to write code at all. As long as you can Google, you can pretty much build stuff, right? It, very true. And as we've moved more into the low-code world also, there are people that have never really taken a software engineering class or done any sort of development that are now able to code. But let's talk about open source for a minute, because what I don't want people to walk away from this chase is thinking that they shouldn't be using it. Open source is absolutely critical. They need it in order to focus on the actual differentiating features and the things that are going to add value to their customers. Open source often allows them you know, allows an organization to address a lot of basic needs and other aspects of their application. It's pretty critical. But because you have all of these open source libraries that you're not controlling, you know, the opportunity for there to be a new vulnerability discovered or for someone to introduce a vulnerability or for someone to discover a zero day or anything along those lines is absolutely there. And we see it all the time and it's not unusual. It's no more unusual than finding a vulnerability in proprietary code. The difference is, of course, with open source code, it's not just your problem. It's the problem of everyone that's using it. And we don't upgrade our our libraries that frequently. So it's not just a matter of going and fix the bug. It's a matter of, oh, you have to, to move to the next version of the library or move to the, the, the appropriate version. And then you have to ask yourself, okay, what, what happens if I do that? Am I going to break anything if I make that change? What sort of backwards compatibility do I need to be worried about? Do I have time to do the, the level of testing that's needed to change the library? Do I need to change the library anywhere else? So all of these things come into play that makes this a, not necessarily simple problem, and it's why the remediation guidance that is coming 
to the fore with a lot of SDA platforms is so important because developers need that information about which version should I upgrade to? Is it going to break my code? What should I do in that case? But isn't there, as well, looking through all this other research that I was able to find, isn't there also a, a business problem with kind of the way that devs are incentivized and do their work, right? There, I've read a lot of stuff about devs are yeah. basically like rated and they're, they're code factory you know, they're just banging stuff out and getting it out. And it even says in some of the research that they're part of the problem is they're held to account of code, 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 ship, 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 rather than them sitting back and going like, okay, have we run all the testing? And nah, 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 nah. I mean, is, is that a, I, it seems to me like that's a business process issue. Is that fair? So it's a little complicated, but I would say at a high level, the job of the developer and what they're incented on to your point, Chase, is they are incented to get features in customers' hands. That's what they're paid to do. That's what they want to do. And moving quickly, being innovative, getting that code out there is important. And therefore, anything that slows them down is a problem. And security has this reputation historically of slowing them down. Department so, of the yeah. Department of Yeah. yeah. Absolutely. And so the biggest one of the biggest challenges that, you know, we talk to the security teams about is how they can change that perception, change that reputation. And rather than being the department of no, be the department of enabling the yes or the department of how. And department so that's go, potentially yeah, it's a good way of putting it. Yeah. And so then it becomes. So, yeah, go ahead. No, I was just gonna say so, but the, the, does that does that run into? Because I mean, I I remember specifically sitting with folks when they when I was doing hardcore security work and they were writing you know apps or whatever else. Like you would get into those back and forth of somebody going like, "Well, do we you know have we got this right?" And their response usually was, "I'm not sure, but it's it's going live in X date." And you were just going, "Okay, well, I really hope that this is not you know bad bad outcome." And that's where I actually think that the process and tooling has evolved a fair amount and is a lot easier to enable developers now than it used to be because we're better at integrating security into the pipelines and integrating it in earlier so that they can discover vulnerabilities and security issues, even at the point in their IDE where there's actually like hands to keyboard. And if they introduce something or there's a library with an issue, depending on which tools they have and how well integrated they are, they can discover that then, they could fix it then, rather than say having, you know, you going back to them in three weeks saying, hey, we found this thing, go fix it. And now you have to go back into the code and remind yourself what the heck you were doing and refamiliarize yourself with potentially an entire thread that you hadn't touched in weeks and then try to fix it. That slows you down. Fixing it in process, being alerted as you're doing the development being alerted even early in builds, early in testing, that's a heck of a lot faster. So if we go back to that incentive to get product out the door quickly, if you actually leverage the security tooling integrations with the pipeline, you can actually meet both requirements of getting out code quickly to their to meet their incentives and having it be secure. But it requires work. So, so then if the technology exists and if the processes are understood, the best practices, does it seem to be like a, I don't know, a cop out or a, uh, a way of just kind of going like, sorry, you know, is that, I mean, because if, if people continually do that and we see that, I mean, I, there was just a report published about electronic arts and something like 500 of their 
uh, DNS configuration mm -hmm. issues that led to the breach, whatever else. And that's not specifically an application, but it is kind of a software-y type thing. Um, you know, is that is that a cop out? Is or is that a viable reason for people to say I didn't do this? I know that's what I keep running back into. Is I don't know if I agree or disagree. Yeah, well, I mean, it it's tough. Most people generally want to do the right thing, but sure. they're also pressed with all of the other pressures and issues of the day. So one of the things security needs to do is make those a lot easier. Is it a cop out to say eh, I don't understand it? I don't have time. We're not going to deal with it. It's a cop-out if that is accepted and approved by multiple levels and everyone is sort of in, in agreement of we're going to wash our hands of this. The good news is I don't talk to a lot of people who say that. Most, most of the security teams, even when, they, when I start to get inquiries about moving to DevSecOps or you know, being more agile or purchasing specific tools, I am starting to see more developers on those calls. So there is more engagement, and we're even seeing cases where the application security tooling isn't solely in the security budget. It's still primarily in the security budget, but there are cases where it's in the dev budget now. So going back to your question, is it a cop-out? I don't want to say definitively it is, but I think there is enough that can be done that if you're just going to sort of say, oh, it's too hard, then, then you're not digging deep enough. Fair. I mean, that's fair, right? So, that, so follow on to that is, and I, I want, I, I'd love to hear your thoughts on this because I have my own. But do, you, do you do developers do they buy security solutions? Or I mean, you sign, you kind of hinted at it. They do, they do security they stuff. Influence. They know, but do they, do they buy it? Do they budget for it? Um, some do now. Most, most of the time, it's still in the security purchasing center, but we are seeing occasionally it being in the dev buying center. Even when it's security buying though, dev is a very core influencer in this. Uh, because frankly, they're the ones using the tools. If oh, they're yeah. not gonna use the tool, there is no point in buying this thing. You know, the worst thing you can do as a security person is buy this fancy do SAST or SCA or IS tool and throw it over the wall and say, go figure out how to use it. It's gonna sit there and be shelfware. And I think most teams have figured that out. So they've started to bring dev to the table and say, hey, what what languages are you developing in? <laughs> you know, what frameworks are you using? What technologies uh, and architectures are of concern here? And that actually then feeds into the requirements for what tools you need, which is kind of important. And then they're more bought into the process. We're even seeing situations here, Chase, where I think a couple of the security vendors have caught on to this, and they're taking more grassroots efforts to reach the developer first and engage with the developer so that by the time security comes along and says, hey, you need SCA, dev may raise their hand and say, hey, we're using this freemium thing. Um, we kind of like it. Could we maybe get the paid version of that? Yeah, well, I mean, that's... Uh... That's where some of the benefit of um, the power you you wrote about this the power that you get with APIs make it where you can do more with different things and you're not just hamstrung into one particular bucket for an application that type of thing right? Oh, there's there's that absolutely. Um, but I mean, e e even within if you were doing just traditional more monolithic coding, having tooling that is much more developer friendly, that is targeted towards the developer, that the developer can use and become, let's say, fond of uh, before security comes in and says, you need a tool like this. 
you know, it's going to be a much easier conversation if they've already found something that they like. So and maybe goal, finding something they like is good enough. That well, yeah. Right. I mean, the goal, in your opinion, is still shift it left and make it where it's part of everything. I, I am still a fan of shift left. And, you know, people occasionally ask about that because I do hear folks talk about, you know, is shift left really appropriate? You know, shouldn't we also be shifting left? right, shifting everywhere. And yes, we should shift everywhere, but shift left was never about only shift left. We started talking shift left because we weren't shifting left at all. And we yeah. needed to make sure that we were accounting for this. We were trying to catch everything on the back end. Shift left was necessary because we weren't, we weren't looking early enough. As we become better at looking early, yes, we want to extend how we find and respond to vulnerabilities, you know, from start to finish from design all the way through production but we've never been that good at it on the left side so that's why we had to shift oh, interesting so oh, all right well so that that kind of brings me to your some of your stuff you wrote a little earlier which i loved i thought this was was like uh uh a canon that we should all talk about so the title of it was debunking infosec purity and other security <laughs> in the wake i like super super title talking about an op-ed published in the hill um, and myth number one, the best InfoSec pros have never had a security incident. Like where in God's name did people think that that was actually a thing? I, I posted I a mean, Twitter poll after I read the op-ed chase because I just wanted to know how many people would be unqualified for a security job based on that criteria. Um, as somebody who, and it was a very unspecific thing in terms of, you know, what role you even had or anything like that. But I'm someone, I worked for RSA in 2011. I think, therefore, I am unqualified to hold a security job. Yeah, that was a, that was a pretty notable brief. People still talk. There's books written on that one, right? Yeah. And, and I worked with many other highly competent, engaged people who are phenomenal security professionals. Are all of them unqualified to hold security jobs? I don't think so. Yeah, I, uh, I, when I was working at a, uh, an organization, I won't say where, but it was a commercial. And uh, sure enough, I did something wrong and I bricked the entire company network for about uh, three hours. Um, so that was that was fun. And then we had a, an incident following on to that. So, yeah, I would be unqualified and unhirable, which I think is probably fair for me. <laughs> nah. But you learn something from that. And that's the other point that's been made. All of us go through these incidents, go through these issues. We get better at response. We get better at how we communicate it. You, you want the people who have been through some sort of trials. You know, that, 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 should, not, that should not limit you. But yeah, yeah. I, I ran the Twitter poll after I read that. And I think something like 85, 88% of respondents were like, okay, I'm unhirable. And I ran it yeah. internally uh, among some of our colleagues your former colleagues as well and most of us are unhirable yeah well there's i mean that uh, i think i mean it's one of those deals where if you're going to be in a fist fight i want somebody that's you know had their ass kicked at least once i mean yeah. you know to duck you know <laughs> and and that's the thing that you know really irritated me about it that and i think a lot of us were kind of ranty i certainly wasn't the only one but this this idea that to be qualified in this industry, you can never have made a mistake. Is there another industry where that is the case? Because I, I wouldn't. I mean, Carol Shelby, the guy that built, uh, you know, the Mustangs that everybody clamors after, he said he failed at uh, design uh, hundreds of times. 
Yeah, most, you know, most people do. If you're going to, to assign these impossible standards to security pros, particularly in an industry where we already do a stupid amount of gatekeeping, who's yeah. going to be left to work in this space? Right. Well, then we have, then we actually have a real hiring crisis because we've created it and made it even worse. Well, that, that goes on to your next point where you talk about perfect security. Is that, I mean, that's not a thing, right? That's like Bigfoot. <laughs> But right in the uniform, isn't it? Chase, you can get perfect security if you unplug every device in your house right now. Yeah, exactly. If you never let a human touch a computer, a keyboard, and yeah. you know, you sit yeah. in the in front of Ted Kaczynski's you know closet out there in Montana, maybe. You know, Forrester's team is called security and risk. And you know, Allah will uh, definitely agree with me on this, but you know, we need to talk about the risk side more. We make calculated risk decisions every day. We think about, you know, what is the likelihood of something happening? What are the benefits of it? What's the cost of something if something does occur? And what risks are we willing to take? And that's true in every other area of our lives, too. I take a calculated risk every time I get behind the wheel of a car. Right. You know, we all take the, we all take risks to sort of, you know, decide, you know, what, what danger we're willing to put ourselves in versus the benefit versus the likelihood, all of those things. If, if we think there is a situation in which we can guarantee success, guarantee that no one will hurt us, attack us, it's not there. There, there, yeah. is, no, there is no panacea here. So if we're not looking at things critically, we're going we're gonna to go crazy. Well, and that, that goes on to your third point where you talked about academic, you know, sorts of approaches to this and best practices like that. Does that, do you think that that skews the risk sort of calculation? Because people look at a framework or an academic something or a, a standard and they go, I've met that. I'm good. My risk is almost nothing. I'm well, let's roll. Or is that, is that, I think the point you were making was yeah. they're useful. And they're good for helping you sort of quantify and gravitate what your risk profile looks like. But your your thing and reading through it was like, don't just take that as gospel. You've got to think about this a little bit more critically. Is that is that fair too? It is. And I think there are two points in here. If you go back, you know, 10, 15 years when the security industry was a lot more in its infancy, I think there was more of a tendency for people to take these standards and best practices as gospel and say, if I just, you know, check the box, everything's going to be all right. Most people have gotten past that, right? Most people realize it's a much more complex, dynamic situation that, you know, they have to take more of this, again, more of a risk-based approach. What, 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 are the, what are the risks I'm willing to take? What are the investments I'm willing to make? I was having a conversation with somebody a couple of weeks ago where they asked me about maturity models. And what I said I liked about them is that it allows you to figure out where your gaps are, where your biggest gaps are, and where you want to invest. It would be nice if every security professional and every security office had millions and millions of dollars to throw at every possible problem. We do not. I'm sure you've encountered this as well. You know, there there is not unlimited money. There is not unlimited resources. And so we decide where we're going to get the most bang for our buck, where are the risks that we need to be most cognizant of, and how do we deal with them? And it's the same thing. It's, you know, it's being smart about this and it's being realistic. And it, it it's no different. I mean, if you think about it from the standpoint of maybe a CFO, 
who certainly has a good amount of financial risk and you know risks of fraud, risks of all sorts of issues. Do they require their teams to inspect every single or you know, triple check every single expense, or are there some that get higher levels of diligence because of the money being spent or the risk or what the particular partner or deal in question, and some that you know, get just a cursory amount of review because you feel pretty good about them. It's no different. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's it's a, it's a good thing to sort of wrap your head around, gravitate, and focus on. I, I mean, but I... The one I run into all the time, and you mentioned it in your research, was folks that go trust. And it's like, well, what what the hell does that mean? Like, you're, you know, it's it it's not just uh, you don't just fire it up and go like this. Require you, there is no success without a strategy. I think I don't think you can do anything other than that and expect it to actually work out for you. You can buy every shiny thing in the box, but it doesn't really mean much. You can't sprinkle magic security dust on things. It's not how it works. Yeah. And it's the thing that you have to be careful of even when I find myself talking to security leaders that are looking to move into DevSecOps, the answer isn't just buy a bunch of tools. It's, you know, have those conversations with your team about what are their processes, what are they using today, and then how do we actually integrate it in? Yeah. Well, and that goes into your your other uh, piece of public publication I thought was super interesting was the one about making application security a priority. And I mean, how is how is that resonating? What's the feedback you're getting on with it? You know the the single stat that gave me the most optimism this year was when we asked about the top tactical priorities among security professionals, and AppSec was number one. That really? made me happy. That warmed my heart. Yeah, that was that was the top ta- that was the top that was the top tactical priority, and integrating in the dev process was also in the top ten. So what that says to me is that organizations are paying attention. They realize they have this risk that has to be managed. They realize application security is hard, and they're willing to invest in it. That's absolutely the right direction. That that's a that's a great step forward. Yeah, I mean, if you don't, with all the application stuff going on, right? You mentioned low code, no code, and everything else, like. If we don't pay attention to that, it just gets worse faster, don't you think? I mean, that it, I, I, I'm actually shocked that you said it was number one because I don't think I've ever seen that, but that's encouraging for sure. Um, it, I, I was super encouraged. Here's the thing to think about. Think about this in the context of the last year and a half, which, I mean, we've been through this incredibly, hell. yeah, traumatic, hell. <laughs> hellish traumatic experience. Um, and we've changed the way we do business with with various companies and and websites and places we want to work with or purchase from or do whatever and those organizations have had to respond by changing their applications very quickly think about grocery stores that perhaps never had curbside pickup before and then had to add in the functionality for that or who had only very basic um you know online shopping capabilities and suddenly needed to step it up you know, not just one notch, but multiple notches because suddenly no one was coming into the store. So all of these changes in how people had to interact with what were probably formerly more in-person inter- interactions, and those had to change, those were all rapid application development scenarios. And let's go back to what we were talking about earlier, developers being 
incented and compensated to get feature into customers' hands. 18 months ago, or whatever it was, you know, that suddenly became freaking urgent. And if you or I had come in and said, oh, well, wait a minute, we got to go through these, these whole set of checks, they would have told us to go jump jump into a lake because they didn't have time. It's business. like, yeah, if we go if, if we go through this, we will be out of business. So integrating the security in, building it in becomes a business critical step because the alternative is either we release with various vulnerabilities that we haven't caught because we haven't had time, or we don't release and we're out of business next month because we haven't been able to engage with our customers that need to, to engage with us in a different way than they did a few months before. So but do you think that there should be a um, a sort of liability thing assigned to that? Because if you're if you're you know pushing stuff out fast for whatever purposes, right? Business, mm -hmm. cat, you know, saving whales or something. But like if you're pushing code really fast, yep. and you know that your your risk profile is bigger than it should be, and if something bad happens, should there be? And I mean, yes, people will say they already have some of this, but like, do you think we have enough? uh you know measures that actually make this hurt or is it just one of those oh crap we screwed up sorry about your day go on about it pay a fine uh, life goes on i don't know that adding any more fines or liabilities is going to change behavior much i think I people agree. will accept yeah. i think people will accept the, the the liability risk that that comes with that I think it becomes more about rather than you know, rather than carrying the stick on this, give them the ability to do the right thing in a more simple, organic way. Going back to what we were talking about, people generally want to do the right thing, but if we make it hard for them, they won't. So we can either, you know, beatings continue until morale improves, or we can actually find a way to make them make it easier for them to do the right thing. I'm pretty sure I specifically remember hearing that phrase on my first ship back uh, back in 99. So, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, so, and, yeah. So, well, I mean, uh, tangential to application security and everything else, uh, I always like to ask people, like, what's what's the thing that you like or enjoy or motivates you on the outside of this? And I know one of them is is making amazing food. Um, you know, All right. So, like, I did bring a prop. Yeah, exactly. Hello, this is my work. current. Yeah, this is my current uh, set of projects. I picked this one up a couple of months ago. I first got it from the library to make sure the recipes were good, and then I bought it copy myself. I find baking nice. relaxing, and I like really? feeding people. Now, so it, it, you think you find it relaxing because you just in your brain you like the way to put things together to make something come out? Is that is that what helps? Yeah, kind of zen. Yeah, I like, I like the reward at the end. I like being able to show something cool that I made that's a little, yeah. you know, different and that people enjoy. You know, yeah, I, I like the fact that people love, you know, that I'll share my cake photos with you or, you know, with Jeff or someone like that. And they'll be like, oh, that looks yummy. Yeah, you know, it's, it's, it's like, it's like, torturous because yeah. I'm like, man, I got to figure out how to get a hold of some of that. Yeah. Yeah. I, 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 I will do a trade with you. We'll find a way. <laughs> we need to figure out how to get cakes from, you know, Boston to DC and yeah. ship barbecue back up without breaking everything. I think we need to do this. Right. 
my thing I've gotten into lately is uh, for for Christmas and birthday, I get a set of like really nice knives, and I really enjoy sharpening them like to like ridiculous levels. And I, it's just then I just do it, and I kind of get lost in it, and I'll look up, and it's been ninety minutes on a knife, you know, and it's like wow, I can, you know, atoms with this thing. I don't need it to be that sharp, but it's just kind of you know turn the brain off and and do something. So. There's something to be said for doing something completely different than your job and having this creative outlet that's just a completely different type of creativity. Yeah. yeah and it's, I need that. It's turn the brain off a bit, you know, and just let it kind of do its thing. That's cool. I'm, one of these days I'll figure out how to bake. I can I can cook, but I baking, I've never, never, I don't think I've ever baked anything. I'd like to. but. You know, I'll say I've picked up a couple of really good tips from this one, things that I hadn't realized I needed to do that were probably fairly basic, but even just, you know, softening the butter more, bringing the eggs to room temperature, discovering some ingredients I'd never used before. I I didn't know black cocoa was a baking ingredient before I started my most recent sort of forays into into this into this cookbook and it gives these cakes these really nice, rich, deep dark chocolate like look mm. and 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 richness to it and i'm you know the first time i had one i was like well where has this been why did nobody tell me that this was a thing no no one mentioned this well and this is this is really unfair because i've been on a fast for about 24 hours and now i'm, I'm gonna oh. go eat so I'm probably- oh i'm sorry chase <laughs> <laughs> it's all good well uh upcoming research what's coming that we should you know be knowing about look for from you i know you got a wave in the works but anything else yeah actually there's something i'm really excited about that's launching this summer um i've been doing some research into beyond application security product security and really about the integration of security not just with development but with the product management train so we often talk about application security and we talk about it starting from maybe if we're lucky the design process more likely it's even in the dev process and you know as you and i have been talking about integrating it in with the tooling and then once it's launched having various protections you know on the back end such as web application firewall bot management etc to help protect it once it's in production all well and good but what about sooner than that What about when the product management, product marketing team is coming up with different product ideas and vetting them? Is the security team involved at that point looking at potential threats, looking at, you know, risks of different approaches and different products and how that might impact the market? When the team decides, hey, you know, we think it's now is the time for us to start doing serverless development is security looking around and saying, oh crap, nobody on my team actually has ever done anything with serverless or has any training on it. Maybe we should find some resources or get someone trained up on this and maybe see if we need some tooling before this goes into production. Like all these conversations that happen even earlier than design, where if you bring in security too late, you're gonna miss things and they're gonna scramble. So I want to look at the product security process from that you know, more product management standpoint and really think about how do we get security integrated much, much earlier before there's even a product to talk about. So it's a hard problem, but that's kind of the next level of product security that we need to be thinking about. So I'm really jazzed about that. Product security, yeah, that's gonna be super cool. Wow, so you got, you got lots of things in, uh, in play there between that and the wave and uh, all the other research, so wow. 
<laughs> Keeps me out of trouble, Chase. Yeah, well, good. Well, sometimes trouble's a good thing to be in, but uh, yeah, you know, it keeps you uh, engaged. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah, thank you again for chatting. Uh, Sandy Carey Elliott Forrester, awesome research, uh, future trivia partner, and eventually uh, baker slash barbecue tradee. So. Excellent. I think we, we will find some event. You'll bring the barbecue, I'll bring the cakes, and we'll feed everyone. There we go. Awesome. Thank you for having me, Chase. Absolutely. Disclaimer, the information in this podcast episode, aka episode, is provided for general information purposes only. By listening to this episode, you understand that this is not specific technical guidance from the host. No information contained in this episode should be construed as security advice from the author, host, or guest, nor is it intended to be a substitute for security advice on any particular subject matter. No listener of this episode should act or refrain from acting on the basis of any information included in or accessible through this episode without seeking the appropriate technical or other professional advice on the particular facts and circumstances that are discussed. This podcast is for informational purposes only. All views expressed therein are those of the host and his guest and should not be considered as being endorsed by nor related to the host or the guest's employers.